welcome. Thank you. As we greet each other, it's a good time to remember to be grateful for the Sangha and for each other. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak today. I have a few thoughts that I'd like to share, and I truly hope that they contribute to our practice. I uh, drove over the ridge like I do every Sunday, and it was a great joy to see some of the first trees that were in full bud. It's been a great joy since September or so when I started coming to see the leaves change and then fall, to see the first snowfall and snow melt and fall again and melt again. It was wonderful to see the um, the creek at the side of the Julian Pike uh, spate and surge with the snow melt a few weeks ago. Uh, even in the autumn I saw, uh, I think it was a red-tailed hawk come down right by the side of the road just as I was driving by and, and get what I think was some kind of rodent. These are all reminders that uh, all conditioned things are transitory and that everything is connected. And uh, right, we get in the car on Sunday morning and uh, stop hurrying and, and we're reminded, oh yes, I'm trying to practice Buddhism. And so the drive over the ridge, for me anyway, is a nice time to remember how the cycle of birth and death that we can see reminds us that there really is no birth and no death. So I told Mado that I was going to uh, talk about, um, well, what we call in the English-speaking world the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and how that relates to how that relates to um, the idea of compassion and loving kindness. We also use the word metta and how it relates to uh, various of the paramis, the paramitas that we strive to practice. And as I, uh, I thought about the idea of reciprocity, the idea of the golden rule, the idea of compassion, uh, I realized that it was a much more deep and complex idea than it first appears, even though we can practice it very superficially and still have it be um, beneficial. And by coincidence, I was reading the Diamond Sutra, um, which is not, by the way, a very accessible sutra. It's not the sort of sutra that we would uh, try to chant before we <laughs> began uh, meditation. It runs for many pages, and it's... Um, for somebody who's, if, if someone who was encountering Buddhist ideas for the very first time read this sutra, it might not make any sense at all. And without a, a good commentary, it didn't make much sense to me, I have to, I have to admit. I recommend this one, The Diamond That Cuts Through Illusion by Thich Nhat Hanh. And uh, what makes this particular sutra so central is that it includes um, some of the most important insights that we try to get in Mahayana Buddhism. 
like the idea that there is no independent existence, that there is no birth and no death, that all conditioned things are illusory or empty or transitory, but also the idea that these very concepts and the words that we use to conceive of them and communicate about them are necessarily inadequate and that to really have insight we have to practice in order to get past those categories. But let me start by talking about um, the idea of the golden rule, the idea of reciprocity. So I, uh, I guess you could call this a little hobby of mine. I think it's fascinating to look at other religions, especially other religions um, from the distant past, and just anthropologically in terms of culture, and maybe even in terms of what is intrinsic to all of us as a, in our species. So for instance, um, from more than 3,000 years ago, there is a story from ancient Egypt that has been preserved on uh, papyrus scrolls called The Tale of the Eloquent Peasant. And I don't know much about the story. The story itself from the part that I read uh, appears to be not all that um, memorable or deep, but it does contain this um, it does contain this fragment. One of the characters says the following, do for another what may cause them to do the same for you. By the way, as I read these um, quotations that I found from many different traditions, we might find it beneficial to think about how these selections match our understanding of the Dharma how they might fit in with the Dharma, how they're the same or different from the Dharma. Do for another what may cause them to do the same for you. In Zoroastrianism, which is a very old tradition, more than 3,000 years old, and uh, the roots of which go even further back than that. So I found these selections from Zoroastrian texts. That nature alone is good, which refrains from doing to another whatsoever is not good for itself. Here's another one. When one is injured, everyone should proceed as though it happened to them. And this is the one that I I really favor. This is from Zoroastrianism. This is 1,500 or 1,000 years before the Buddha. Just as I am, so are they. Just as they are, so am I. You find this in the Torah. So in the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Torah, that was, uh, we date to 2,700 years ago. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We all know this tradition comes back uh, even more strongly in the Christian tradition. The, um, the final, the 24th and final founding teacher of Jainism in India, this was contemporaneous with, with our teacher, the Buddha, Mahavira, his name was. He taught about the same time as the Buddha. And he said this, 
in happiness and in suffering, in joy and in grief, we should regard all creatures as we regard our own selves. About the same time, Confucius was uh, putting down the Analects. They weren't written down till later, but they were an oral tradition memorized. And here's a fragment I found. Gongzi asked, is there a single word that tells us what we should do every day for our whole lives? And Confucius said, yes, that word is shu. What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. And this word that in Mandarin today is pronounced shu, today it just, it's uh, the, the contemporary connotation in modern Mandarin is forgiveness. But Confucius used this word, the same character, 2,500 years ago, right? So there's been a lot of uh, semantic drift. And so he used it, um, it's often translated as uh, likening to oneself, right? So explicitly sort of more, more um, profound than the simple reciprocity of the golden rule, but the idea of um, what's yours is mine and what you would want, I would want. And so it, it gets translated as reciprocity, fairness, restraint, manners, equanimity, consideration, even-handedness, this Confucian sense of empathetic identification. In Hinduism, the Mahabharata is the central, uh, one of the central epic poems of Hinduism, set down around the time of the Buddha, maybe a little bit more, and up until today, it would be hard to overstate its impact, an impact comparable to the uh, Bible and the Quran. And there's a, a lot of things happen in this story, but the part I'm referring to, there's a king, uh, Yudhishthira, who's talking to uh, Brihaspati, sort of an old elder statesman of the gods. Uh, Brihaspati is descended from the same, linguistically and mythologically, descended from the same figure in the Indo-European culture that comes down as uh, Zeus and Jupiter in the Mediterranean. So the king uh, asks uh, Brihaspati, um, which of the Hindu practices is the most important? And Brihaspati says, none of them are the most important. I'm going to tell you what the most important is. Are you ready? Because you better listen because I'm going to tell you. He says, the one who practices the religion of universal compassion achieves the highest good. The one who regards all creatures as his own self and behaves towards them as towards his own self, laying aside the rod of chastisement and completely subjugating his wrath, succeeds in attaining happiness. The very deities become stupefied in ascertaining the track of the one who looks upon all creatures as one's own self, for such a person leaves no track behind. Now that's not Buddhism, but it's uh, very, it, it, it's almost contemporaneous with Buddhism a little bit before, and you can definitely see the connections, I think. So after the, the uh, Talmud was, was set down, so this is, you know, after um, Jewish culture was well-established and, you know, all the stories about the, this exile and that, exodot, that, that exile. But about 2,000 years ago, uh, a Jew approached the Rabbi Hillel, and he was skeptical. 
and he said, uh, what's the, I'm paraphrasing, what's the one key teaching? How do you boil down the Torah? And Hillel, and this is a very famous answer that Hillel said, that which is harmful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole Torah, the rest is commentary. Now go and study. <laughs> so that's a, there's a lot, there's a lot there. And it's not by accident that it's so well remembered. Even in English, the rest is commentary. We still use that insight, don't we? And it sounds a little bit Buddhist to me. Now go and study. It's not enough to have the insight. You have to apply it. In the Jewish tradition, this is a little bit more uh, textual in the Buddhist tradition, maybe it's a little bit more practical, but we can see the we can see the connections. I don't have time to go through the parable of the Good Samaritan, but I think we all know the idea. Um, in Islam, all throughout the Quran, the Prophet Muhammad um, repeatedly challenges uh, believers to repel good with evil and to be patient. And the, the context for this, these repetitions, to be patient, usually he's talking about um, with enemies, whatever sort of spiritual enemy or... Um, and this, this patience is meant to be, um, well, a spiritual patience. The idea is to um, avoid anger and vengeance. Let me give you some more concrete examples. These are all from the Quran. Not one of you is a believer until you desire for your brother what you desire for yourself. Whosoever desires to enter paradise, let them treat people the way they would want to be treated. Forgive them and overlook their misdeeds. Verily, Allah loves those who are kind. The true servants of Allah are those who walk on the earth with humility. And when the ignorant address them, they respond with words of peace. I think that's the sense of patience. Return evil with good, so that the one who was formerly an enemy will become a dearest friend. All right, so what do we find here? Uh, in all of these, there are sort of three senses of what we call the golden rule. There's a lot of commentary about this, but I don't want to get too much into the philosophy just to point out that there's a negative sense of the golden rule. Don't do to somebody what you wouldn't want done to you. And then there's a positive sense. Do to people what you would think, what you think you would like to have done to you. But then there's a, there's a more ineffable, potentially radical sense that is articulated even in Western traditions as thou art I and I am thou. So this brings us to the um, this brings us to the Diamond Sutra, and again, um, what's interesting about this sutra? It reminds us that there is no independent existence, and thus no birth and no death, and it very strongly reminds us that our perceptions are inadequate, our associations, our um, our concepts, our categories are inadequate. The 
the thoughts that we use and the words that we use are inadequate to express the insights that are central. All of these are necessary, but necessarily inadequate. So, for instance, all of us are, have our uh, butts parked on a cushion. In Japanese, these are called, well, you guys have chairs. <laughs> so I'm sitting on a zabuton, which is uh, the Japanese word for cushion. And we know that there's more to this than the word cushion, right? And it turns out that the, the semantic overlap between cushion and zabuton, that's fairly broad, but not perfect. There are connotations and meanings of cushion that are different from the connotations and meanings of zabuton and how they fit together with English, the rest of English and the rest of Japanese. But even more importantly, with a, just even a little bit of insight, you can see that this object, it's an object, it exists, and it, uh, it is visually and cognitively and mechanically separate from the rest of the universe. But in a much deeper sense, we all know that without the sewing machine and the thread and the stuffing and the trucks that brought all them to the factories and the factories and all of the people and the economic system, and maybe these came from Amazon, I don't know, right? There's a very elaborate network of interconnections and I'm, I'm, I'm presenting it in a, I'm trying to be cute and make you smile and show how mundane it is. But in a very deep sense, there is no separation between the cushion and all of those elements outside of the cushion. And likewise, if you went to the factory or any of the people driving the trucks or the person running the sewing machine, everything that touches the sewing machine and the person running the sewing machine also has infinite connections to the rest of our world. And so there is no, there is no cushion, just as there is no I and there is no you. So I, I found, uh, when, I was, when I was reading the sutra, I was very surprised to see the connections between this idea of emptiness of objects and the idea of the golden rule and the ideas of loving kindness and compassion and equanimity. And I, I found a, I found a very interesting, um, Another passage that, if you forgive me, I'll read from Thich Nhat Hanh from this book, The Sun, My Heart. He puts it a lot better than I ever could, so I'm going to use his words. If you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow, and without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter-are. Inter-being is a word that is not in the dictionary yet. But if we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb, inter-be. Without a cloud, we cannot have the paper. 
so we can say that the cloud and the sheet of paper inter-are. Defiled or immaculate, dirty or pure, these are concepts we form in our mind. A beautiful rose we have just cut and placed in our vase is immaculate. It smells so good, so pure, so fresh. It supports the idea of immaculateness. The opposite is a garbage can. It smells horrible. It is filled with rotten things. But roses and garbage inter-are. Without a rose, we cannot have garbage. And without garbage, we cannot have a rose. They need each other very much. The rose and garbage are equal. The garbage is just as precious as the rose. If we look deeply at the concepts of defilement and immaculateness, we return to the notion of interbeing. There's a paragraph in there that I skipped because we don't got all day. Uh, where he talks about, you know, if you're an organic gardener, you get this, right? You take compost, you make vegetables. You take vegetables, you make compost. In the city of Manila, and also, he says, in Ho Chi Minh City, in New York City, in Paris, there are many young prostitutes, some of them only 14 or 15 years old. These are very unhappy young ladies. They did not want to be prostitutes. Their families are poor. And these young girls went to the city to look for some kind of job. After only a few weeks there, they were persuaded by a clever person to work for her and to earn perhaps 100 times more money. Because she was so young and did not know much about life, she accepted and became a prostitute. And so she feels defiled. The feeling of defilement for her has become a hell. But if she could look deeply at herself and at the whole situation, she would see that she is like this because other people are like that. This is like this because that is like that. How can a so-called good girl belonging to a good family be proud? Because their way of life is like this, the other girl has to be like that. No one among us has clean hands. No one of us can claim it is not our responsibility. The girl in Manila is that way because of the way we are. Looking into the life of the young prostitute, we see the non-prostitute people. And looking at the non-prostitute people and at the way we live our lives, we see the prostitute. This helps to create that, and that helps to create this. So this gives a much richer, I think, view into what Jesus of Nazareth was telling us with the parable of the Good Samaritan when he told us to turn the other cheek when he told us to love our enemy Thich Nhat Hanh points out that love your enemy is absurd the very moment you love your enemy you no longer have an enemy and again this reminds us of the inadequacy of concepts and words but if you don't mind, I'm going to put an even finer point on it. Because I saw an interview recently with Fap um, Dung. He is um, one of the elder disciples of Thich Nhat Hanh. I think he, um, he's still on the West Coast. I think he's in Los Angeles at one of the Plum Village monasteries there. And he gave an interview recently. Um, and the interviewer was asking him about contemporary problems and 
what is the Buddhist response? And, and she asked him in particular about the president, Donald Trump. And it's easy to, it's easy to repeat platitudes about how Trump voters at least deserve our understanding. And Trump himself is clearly, I think, so obviously suffering that uh, it doesn't take very much effort for us to find compassion, for that matter, for any elected, elected official. But what Fop Dung had to say really caught my attention. And then when I related to the idea of compassion and understanding and insight, I think it eliminates a lot. Here's what he had to say. Trump is not an alien who came from another planet. We produced Trump. Our culture, our society made him. We love to pick somebody and make them the object, but it's deeper than that. We have to see him inside of us. We're shocked because we found out there's a member of our family that we've been ignoring. It's time to listen and really look at our family. We're afraid to engage. It requires a lot of practice to sit there and listen and not judge so you can understand. So as the Diamond Sutra teaches us, these insights require, well, what they require is the practice of meditation. Uh, these insights will never be the fruit of writing or reading. They will never be the fruit of speaking or listening. These insights will only come when we, guided by the concepts that we find in the sutras, seek our own insight. So in in my short experience, I find that we must approach these insights in sitting or walking meditation. These ideas of the emptiness of self, the interbeing of the family, the workplace, the sangha, the town, the state, the nation, the globe, the biosphere. And so I invite all of us to look deeply at the connections between the Golden Rule and the Diamond Sutra and all of the other ideas that we've encountered in the Zendo as we enjoy the fresh air and the soft earth under our feet. <laughs>